This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the uh, podcast today is uh, Mitch Steele, who wrote the book on IPA, literally. Welcome to the podcast, Mitch. Thanks, Jamie. Mitch is the former brewmaster for Stone and now the uh, founding brewmaster from New Realm Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we're going to talk about some really fun, cool stuff, certainly hops related, all about making IPAs of a whole variety of sorts. And uh, I think we might even get into talking about some hard seltzer, <laughs> too, a, uh, a pretty hot topic among uh, craft brewers right now. Sure is, yes. But first, before we get started, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. G&D is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large-scale production brewery. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention this podcast and receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller. Also, turn your fridge into the best craft beer bar around with the Tavor app. Get access to hard-to-find, 100% independent craft beers from 47 states. Only buy the beers you want and skip the ones you don't. Ship any amount of your hand-picked beer to your doorstep for one flat fee. Yep, any amount. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. So, Mitch, you know, normally we start off the podcast with a little bit of a historical arc, but I'm pretty sure everybody knows your <laughs> historical arc on this one. Uh, a long tenure uh, kind of uh, writing the book for Stone uh, IPAs, uh, General Stone Beers, uh, leading the brewing operations there. Uh, and then you decided to embark on a new venture with New Realm, move across the country from Southern California to Atlanta. Um, talk to me a little bit about that kind of choice and, uh, you know, the excitement of getting into a new project and being able to build it from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, that was really the motivating factor for for doing it. I, you know, I'd been at Stone for 10 years and it was great and a great run. And I think, you know, when I told Steve and Greg that I was going to do this, um, they understood. They were disappointed, but they they understood and uh you know being entrepreneurial themselves obviously so you know it was it was just an opportunity to try something new and and maybe brew some different beers and um and just build something from the ground up you know and see if we could make it work so you know you came into stone and they had a, a you know some a house philosophy towards the beer they make and their consumer expectations and you brewed to that, but you were able to, you know, kind of find ways to move in, in subtle directions out of that. How then, coming into a brewery like New Realm, do you envision something different and apart from that? And what, you know, this kind of idea uh, and house approach and point of view, you know, that you're going to then build for a new brewery? Yeah, I think I've, I've, uh, I keep a lot of that philosophy from Stone because I enjoyed that. I mean, sure. I, lo- I love Stone beers before I joined them. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, that idea of just brewing aggressively flavored beers where there's no mistaking what you've put into the beer, um, I think is really cool. And we, we kind of follow that for a lot of our beers. Uh, but I'm also, you know, pretty respectful of classic styles as well. Right. And, and the fact that our restaurants in Atlanta, uh, the, the people that come into our restaurants like these beers allows me to brew things like Pilsner's and uh, Meritzen's and Hefeweizen's and some German uh, traditional beers, which is really cool for me as a brewer because I've never really been able to do that. Um, I mean, Stone has restaurants. You, you can't brew that for them too? Yeah, well, you know, that that wasn't what Greg wanted us to do, sure, you know? Sure. And, and I remember, you know, when we'd have conversations about new beers and and if I ever said anything related to a classic style, he'd just break out into this big yawn. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so I kind of just, you know, doing things like a scotch ale or something like that. I just totally, I just dropped the idea pretty quick, you know, which was fine because I loved what we brewed at Stone and I had a lot of fun doing it. But, um, you know, I'm, I appreciate the ability to, to do some other things now too. So how do you still build a continuity, you know, amongst the beers that you make for a new brewery, like, uh, you know, like new realm so that, uh, you know, consumers understand what those flavors taste like even across some of these various styles 
Or is that just a reflection of your own personal, uh, you know, approach to these things? Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I think, um, you know, we're still trying to kind of establish <laughs> yeah, our sure, identity sure. as a brewer. And, and, you know, what I say right now, um, you know, when uh, people come into our restaurant, I want every beer drinker that comes into our restaurant to find something that they would enjoy, you know. So I don't want to pigeonhole myself into different things or one thing, rather. And... So, you know, we just, our approach has been, you know, when we brew something, we want to brew it really well. Um, and if it's a classic style, we want to nail it to the classic style. And if it's something more innovative, then we want to have a flavor combination that works exceptionally well. And, and so, uh, you know, I just want people to have a lot of variety when they come into our place. Now, we're, we're not distributing that many beers. Uh, those are those are a little bit more you know IPA focused uh, what we what we send out into distribution but um, you know we do have our pilsner and it's a hoppy pilsner you know okay. it's, it's hoppier than a lot of them um, you know and and so we can you know I I've always taken a lot of I've made a lot of effort to be able to brew a lot of different things and that's what we try to do. Let's talk. I, I, I'm going to keep pushing on this because I'm just curious about it. You know, I mean, when you, you talk about brewing a classic style, but, you know, it's it's nailing a classic style isn't nailing the platonic ideal of this one thing. You know, there are multiple expressions that all feed into an idea of a classic style. You know, uh, for you, when you're approaching, say, something like Hoppy Pilsner, mm-hmm. um, you know, what is it about that kind of idea of a classic, you know, that appeals to you? And then, in you know, as you look at it, how do you make some of those decisions about, you know, which hops we're going to select? Uh, you know, how, what kind of base malt we're going to you know build on this? What kind of brew house process we're going to build around this? So, you know, to, mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, build a body, how much malt character do we want into it? You know, are we looking for a little bit of softness and sweetness? Are we building it hard and sharp? You know, talk to me a little bit about some of that vision process for you. Yeah. And actually the Pilsner is a good one to talk about uh, with, relating to that because that was one where we really did get our heads together and and try to figure out what we wanted to do um you know so when we when we did our pilsner i wanted to do kind of a north german pills i wanted to have something uh that had a little bit of bitterness to it but the the big thing i was shooting for with that beer was to have hop aromatics in it and we went uh the the water in atlanta is very soft so that's a good starting point for for brewing a pilsner uh, we decided to go 100% German malts on it. Uh, we trialed a couple of different Pilsner malts and settled on one. Um, what do you use? We use uh, Weyermann Pilsner. Okay. Just, and that's the only malt that's in the beer except for a little bit of acidulated malt. Okay. Um, and it just works great. And um, and then we, uh, on the brew house side, um, you know, we we don't do decoction or anything like that, you yeah. know, and I don't, I don't really think it's necessary to brew a great beer. I, I appreciate the fact that people do it and, and right. really think that they get a lot out of it, but I just, you know, from a production standpoint, it's a nightmare. So, um, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to go down that road. So we, you know, we do a step infusion mash on it, um, you know, with a low temperature, mid, high temperature, and then a mash off temperature. Um, and we get what we want from that, you yeah. know, with a, with the malt flavor and everything coming through. The hopping is where where I kind of took a little bit of a left turn, and and so we start off the brew using traditional German German hops, but then in the whirlpool process, we dose it heavily with with a traditional hop. We're using Hollertau Hersbrucker, um, which is Hersbrucker is one of my favorite German hops. Yeah, and we're combining. Why is it a favorite? I just think it's really clean and floral and uh, just kind of got that classic German character to yeah. it, you know. Uh, I mean, Hollertau is awesome as well, but we decided to use Herzbrucker in this just because, you know, I did some dry hop trials with it at Stone and just fell in love with it. Um, and and then, but we also use Huel Melon hops in the beer as well. Oh, so it's... Okay. It's a blend of those two hops in the finish. And I think what I was thinking, I think what was going through my head at the time was kind of blending the tradition with the new, you know, and, and trying to get the best of both worlds, you know, with that beer. And um, it's, you know, it's been consistently one of our top sellers. So uh, originally when it first came out, it was way too bitter, Okay. Uh, you know, and, and people laughed at me because I'm, you know, an IPA guy. And they're like, what are you trying to do? Brew a, <laughs> brew a bitter I, uh, Pilsner, uh, you know, an IPA Pilsner? Um, 
so we you know we've made adjustments from there yeah. and it's it still runs 35 to 40 ibus though it's still pretty bracingly bitter uh but i like that i like dry and bitter i you know i i just like that kind of combination in a beer it's um i don't like sweet beers right. in general so you know having a nice crisp beer that's got some bitterness and has a lot of hop aroma was something that that we were trying to do with this beer sure what does the hop schedule look like on that and uh, i mean i imagine that you're your whole uh, uh, melon is coming in. Are you, is that only a dry hop hop then? No, it's it's a whirlpool hop. Oh, okay. um, we're we're using kind of a hop salad on this one, but uh, you know we bitter it with Magnum. Uh, it's fairly traditional until we get to the whirlpool, yeah. uh, and then we do a late kettle edition that's got sapphire um, and. Uh, Boy, Sterling, which is the only American hop in the in the mix, yeah. uh, but Sterling is a you know designed to be a Czech Sots type of hop. So uh, you know it's got some of that Sots character to it, which is really nice. And then um, so that's in the late edition, and then um, and then we do the Whirlpool edition with the Huel Melon and the um, and the Hirschbrecher. Okay, and is is there a dry hop component to it too? Or? No, no, no okay. we don't dry hop it. Uh, we thought about doing so, but we liked how the hop character was yeah. when it first came out. So we just uh, we've done dry hop pilsners. We just don't do sure. it with this one. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's uh, since we're talking about hops, let's switch gears a little bit and start talking about IPA formulation. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, this episode is brought to you by Brew Guru, the free mobile app that alerts you to local discounts on beer, food, and homebrewing supplies. Created by the American Homebrewers Association, Brew Guru is your essential guide to brewing and drinking great beer. Start a 30 day free trial, no credit card info required when you download Brew Guru for iPhone or Android. Balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274, or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the experts that experts trust. So IPAs, we now talked about how you envision a, a Pilsner, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, this has to be one of the, the uh, most uh, anticipated things for you to, to start brewing <laughs> at this new brewing coming, uh, brewery coming out of uh, someone who like, literally did write the book on <laughs> yeah. IPA and uh, you know, had built such an iconic uh, idea of West Coast IPA you know, at Stone. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you... Uh, have you started envisioning IPAs and some of that process, uh, knowing that your mar- new market in Georgia may not have some of the the kind of uh, you know bitter embrace of West Coast uh, you know hop fanatics, or uh, you know and have a broad you know maybe uh, certainly not as saturated of a you know heavy IPA market as San Diego County is. Uh, how do you bring uh, you know um, this IPA style? to an audience like this, and I'm not saying that Georgia doesn't know IPAs, IPAs are everywhere, uh, yeah. you know, but uh, different regions have different tastes. And, uh, you know, how did you well, talk to me about that process of, uh, of envisioning and designing? Well, you know, it's actually very interesting because we, we goofed, you know, when we, yeah? you know, okay. uh, we started off, we did a West Coast IPA um, that was very much inspired by stone ipa uh, you know i i kind of took that as a template and then built upon that and it's 73 ibus and it's dry hopped with centennial and simcoe which are two of my favorite hop varieties and that's a combination i never used at stone so i felt okay about using it and and we just wanted to brew a really great ipa and um the p- first uh, few months of customers coming into our restaurant the feedback we got is the beer was too bitter for them and they didn't really like it, and and so, um, and it's still on. And the, and the people that are really ice coat or IPA fanatics and IPA fans love the beer. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the big seller that that we thought it might be. Right. Right. Um, and so we brewed another one, you know. And this is this is kind of what I do, you know. It's like okay, let's let's make something else. And we did something that was uh, a little bit lower in IBUs. It's uh, you know fifty five or so. Um, it's a little lower in alcohol, and then it's dry hopped with a combination of mosaic, citra, azaka, and laurel, and that is uh, Hoptropolis IPA. And, you know, we were going for kind of a tropical-type flavor because that is popular in Atlanta. Sure. You know, the, the IPAs that have that, you know, the uh, the mango and the, and the 
uh, citrus components to them and less of the piney resiny components, which is what Hop, Hoplandia has. And, and so we did Hoptropolis and that's been a great seller for us. And, you know, it's just, it's not as bracingly bitter as Hoplandia. Right. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's kind of like brewing something for everybody. And we're, you know, we brew a lot of different IPAs. And, you know, we started off, we did, a, we did a black IPA because there was a restaurant in Georgia that told us they'd put it on tap if we did it. So we did it. Um, you know, when we started, we needed to learn our brew house and our fermenters and how everything works. So I brewed things I was familiar with. But as we got into it, then we started brewing a lot of different things. And we started brewing hazy IPAs about four months in. And um, we've got one now that's called Hazy Like a Fox. And I had to learn how to brew them. I mean, they're brewed radically different. And I know, you know, I know everyone <laughs> likes to point out, oh, Mitch, you know, was a little skeptical of uh, hazy IPAs <laughs> early on and then uh, and found the gospel on that. Talk to me a little bit about your process and uh, not only like you know, wrapping your head around it, but coming to a point realizing what the potential was there, uh, not just commercial potential, but also the, you know, the brewing potential. Yeah, it was, you know, it was really fascinating. And, and, you know, as a brewer, and I think most brewers kind of fall into this as well, you know, we like to learn how to do new things, you know, and we like to be challenged. And, and this was definitely a challenge because the people that are really successful at brewing hazy IPAs don't really share a lot about how they're doing it. And, um, and, and so, I was asking. Unless you read Craft Beer Brewing Magazine, which they absolutely do. (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I had to, I asked a lot of questions and I talked to a lot of people about what they're doing. And, and, you know, one thing I found is a lot of people are doing it different ways, you know, and and there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. But it was fascinating to me from the standpoint that these are so different than a West Coast IPA. The grist is different, the water chemistry is different. Um, you know, a lot of brewers are using lactose sugar in there, so they're going completely polar opposite of the dry IPA that's right, that right. West Coast IPA. And trying to figure out how to do that and make a beer taste good um, was really hard. And I, and I remember uh, the hardest thing we had, once we got the flavor component and got understood what was happening during the mid-fermentation dry hop and the development of the, of the juiciness, was getting stable haze. Sure, sure. I mean, every brewer who's gone through any sort of professional training is taught how to make beer clear, you know, and and nobody teaches you how to make a beer hazy. It's just not done. So, you know, this is going against everything you've learned as a brewer. Sure, and and making a beer clear is uh, actually a little bit easier than it is making a stable, hazy beer. I mean, using, you know, findings and other techniques, you you can clear just about any beer. But yeah. making sure that haze stays in solution, those hop polyphenols stay in solution, <laughs> you know, that uh, your, your protein particles are small enough to kind of remain in solution. I mean, that's, that is its own challenge. It's one we talk about pretty often here. Yeah, it, it, it was hard for us. and, and we How'd you do it? Well, uh, so number one, yeast selection is important. Yeah. So you got to have a yeast that works well with this style and doesn't, doesn't settle out too, too right. hard. Because uh, I know, you know, I've had some some hazy IPAs from a can where the yeast is there's still yeast in it, and it's right. But you know, in the in the end, we we actually centrifuge our yeast out and and sure. leave the haze in, and we have a centrifuge in our brewery, so we just we. I mean, sp- a lot of the a lot of the top brewers do, you know, other half and Trillium. I mean, they're mm-hmm. all even, you know. Treehouse, all of the guys bring big hazy IPAs yeah. are centrifuging those beers for yeah. that same kind of reason because centrifuging it will create that more stability in the long run. Yeah, and that, and that's what we found out too because yeah. we tried the first couple of times we tried brewing them, we tried just racking into a bright tank and then and and we just didn't like what the yeast was doing in that situation. So what what yeast are you using? We're using London Ale 3 for hazy like a fox. Yeah. You know, kind of the, you know, the one of the one of the two or three hops that a lot of brewers are using. Yeah. Uh, and we found we like that hop a lot uh, or yeast. that yeast yeah. a lot, sorry. And um you know, it's uh, it it ferments well. It produces good fermentation flavors, and it biotransforms hop components well. It seems to work decently well, even in a large production environment. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a little surprising because it 
can be early on. It was kind of finicky and uh, yeah. generation issues that brewers were having, where you know f- five generations in, it just wasn't uh, yeah. wasn't actually you know remaining stable anymore. Um, you know, but even large breweries, I mean, I, I know that New Belgium is brewing, you know, 2000 barrel tanks full of London ale three, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's even working at this kind of very large, uh, you know, production scale as yeah. well as on this very small and hip scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. so how do you, how do you get good results out of that London ale three then? Well, um, I mean, we just treat it like all of our other yeast, basically. I mean, we we don't repitch it, yeah, uh, because we go through the fermentation dry hop, and the right, yeast coming right. back has got all the hop components on it, and it's just really, it's not very healthy. So, yeah. you know, we've been struggling with that a little bit. You know, uh, having to buy you new yeast, buying each new pitches, or you you're not propping them up. We we've just started propping them up. We don't okay. really have the equipment to do proper propagations, sure. but but we're able to buy. Uh, a 10 barrel pitch and build it and, you know, and then just go with it. Um, You know, and just, uh, you know, the fermentation temperature, we played around with a couple and we kind of settled on about 68 degrees and, you know, to get the haze, you know, we use the, the oats and the, and the wheat and everything in the beer house and, and, and do two dry hops in the beer. And, you know, so it, it works. How much, how much oats and uh, yeast and you are using standard two row, uh, as the base of that or yeah, that is standard American two row, um, uh, as the base malt. And I think we're. Uh, thirty to forty percent combination of wheat and oats. Okay, in the beer. So that's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's about thirty, um, and and that's it. Yeah, and it, it it seems to throw a lot of haze. But our big problem was figuring out how to run the centrifuge, right? And leave enough haze in the beer, and and we were able to do some workarounds with the centrifuge bowl speeds to to make yeah. that work. But we're running it at a much different bowl speed than any other beer we we centrifuge, so it's a different process. Are you uh, you know mashing in any particular way to you know to kind of help stabilize that haze? Um, Keep those proteins in the right place. Yeah, we're we're not really. I mean, we're just kind of doing okay. a, a normal you know step infusion yeah. on that, but we're not doing any sort of weird temperature rests or anything <laughs> like that. Not weird's probably not the right word. But, sure, sure. But uh, nothing you know, too crazy. We're not going too crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk to me a little bit about uh, thinking about hops in these kinds. Of, you know, in this hazy IPA. So I mean, this is what everyone expects from you. You're the, yeah. you're the master, right? And I'm still learning on on sure. this whole thing because the, the what you're trying to get out of the hops is completely different than what I did for years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, I've read a lot of stuff about, you know, having uh, hops with high geraniol and and getting that to biotransform to the citronellol and things like that. And, you know, we landed, we tried a bunch of different hop combinations. Um, uh, you know, we tried the the mosaic and the galaxy thing that a lot of, a lot of the successful uh, right. AZ IPA sure. brewers are using. Um, but we ended up settling on Azaka and Eldorado, and we use a, it's about a 50-50 blend, and we add that during the fermentation, and it just, I think it just goes 100% orange juice within two days, which huh. is really cool. And then after fermentation, we dry hop it with those two hops again, and Azaka's very pineapple-y, and Eldorado's very lemony. So, um, you know, getting those flavors out of the hops as well. So we think that's important. Uh, I know there's a lot of brewers that are making these that aren't doing the fermentation dry hop anymore, and they are. And there's brewers that use the cold whirlpool additions, which we have just started to play with. You know, and the idea being that you're getting all the oils into the fermenter, and then you can still get the biotransformation process going. So it's been it's been fascinating. And I'm not a hater. I never was a hater of hazy sure, IPAs. Sure. I, I was skeptical that they were going to stay stick around. Yeah. Uh, and I will admit, I was surprised at how popular they became. Um, that that surprised me. But you know, from a brewing standpoint, they're they're fun to brew and they're a challenge to brew. And you know, so I always appreciated that part of it. It's always an interesting one for me to hear someone, and I hear it pretty frequently, say, you know, I didn't like IPAs, and then I had a hazy IPA, and I all of a sudden now I like IPAs. And, uh, yeah. you know, that that is kind of a cool thing for people to find their entry into this. You know, whether 
you know, and I'll put aside any debates as, is it actually an IPA? Because these are just words we use that have common meanings that we all decide together yeah. that they mean something, you know, like the word, like the phrase black IPA, you yeah. know, it, does it really mean anything? It doesn't mean anything other than what we decide that it all means collectively. <laughs> and we push that out there. So, you know, is hazy IPA, IPA, I mean, nothing's objectively an IPA other than again, what we all agree that it is. Um, you know, but for that sense, the idea of IPA is has lots of hops in it. Uh, yeah. It seems to be that kind of shorthand for it, and it does. You know, yeah. it's uh, you know, it's right there. But it, that, those kinds of bright and fruit forward flavors, I mean, they're pleasant to human beings. We are, you yeah. know, naturally conditioned to like those things. Yeah. It's not a huge surprise. No, and and I think more people like sweet than they like to let on. You know, these beers are fuller body; they have a little more sweetness, and I think that appeals to a lot of people, even Hundreds though they may of not thousands admit of it. years of evolution have put us <laughs> to this point where yes, we we like sweet, yeah, yeah. right. And so, you know, I you know, going back to your point about you know whether it's an IPA or not, I actually you know suggested that maybe it should be called something different. I was trying to pay the beer style a compliment, sure, but sure. I got you know I put that out on Facebook and got completely skewered by it and I'm like okay you guys missed my point here I'm not I'm not denigrating these beers I I think they're fascinating and I think they're tasty but they're so polar opposite of how to brew a west coast IPA or an English IPA that maybe you know maybe they deserve their own name and you know they, and people didn't like that at all oh, I'm pretty sure I argued with you on Facebook about that one too yeah. I don't know I mean you would you in some ways you know, are they are these IPAs that much different than English IPAs? Yeah, I actually think English IPAs are very similar to West Coast IPAs. Oh, right. um, you know, when I was researching the book and everything, I'm, and I'm not talking about contemporary yeah, English IPAs, yeah. but the historical ones were fermented to be very or brewed to be very light in color, fermented to be incredibly dry. And they were hopped at the same rates that people are hopping American IPAs. So, Interesting. You know, so that, and then, and, but then when you look at hazy IPAs. In terms of just amounts or in terms of actual, you know, volume to alpha acid? Like, no, amounts of hops. Okay. So, you you know, back in the 1800s. They certainly East weren't Canada, in the hops, like, bitterness race that we are now. No, not even close. But, you know, most people think that the beers were probably 50 to 60 IBUs, you yeah. know, and uh, that's based on just what we think we know about East Kent Golding's hops back in the 1800s, right. you know, probably three to 5% alpha acids and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, when you look at, you look at a hazy IPA, um, you know, you want color, you want body, you want, um, you, you want lack of clarity, right? And, you know, the English brewers in the 1800s would settle their beer in casks for up to a year just to make sure that it was crystal clear before, before they shipped it to India, because otherwise it would ferment in the barrel and explode on the boat. Uh, so, you know, it, so I was like, wow, this is this is really radically different than how I've learned how to brew IPAs. And I and I was impressed by it. You know, I'm, I'm like, how do brewers go in this direction and take it this far out of that box, that IPA box, and make a beer that tastes this good. And and so I was, you know, when I suggested that maybe it should be its own style, it was because I thought they were very different, brewed very differently, and and the taste is different too. I mean, they're you know they're sweeter, they're fuller, right, they're right. softer. Um, the hop character is is different in some ways, and you know. But I, I mean, I wasn't trying to say anything bad about <laughs> hazy IPAs. I was trying to right, right. trying to recognize that they're really kind of a creative thing and, and incredible innovation there. You know, but in the market today, IPA is what forty percent of the craft beer market. You yeah. know, I mean, you you, you yeah. put that acronym on something, and people want to buy it just because yeah. it is what it is. And when I, you know, when I said that, I was not wearing my marketing hat. I there was I was wearing yeah. my brewing yeah. hat, and and yeah, and I get it. I get why people were upset with that. It's but. the you know, it's the same thing with fruited Berliner Weisses and and, and gozas and, and yeah. whatnot. You know that uh, you know, uh, give American brewers a, a little bit of rope, and they'll you know they'll run with it and create their own thing and yep. uh you know and it's fun to see i mean that's what the history it's of great. brewing it's what the history yeah. of brewing has been marked by yeah i mean it's it, the history of craft beer is all about innovation and change right. and and doing things and taking what's been established and then twisting it and building on it and and that's what's made this business so cool and so successful you know if you go back even you know in the early 80s people were taking english styles but using american hops in them and creating these beers that were new styles you know and so the people that, you know, the, there are, I know several hazy IPA haters out there, you know, colleague, sure. brewing colleagues, and, 
And I'm like, you know, I mean, there was a time when nobody wanted a regular, you know, a West Coast IPA either, you know, and um, and nobody wanted to brew it or nobody wanted to use this hop or whatever. And I just I just never looked at it that way. I was like, hey, if, if people are if it's innovative, it's creative and people want to drink it. Why wouldn't I brew it? That is a <laughs> curious philosophy, you know, a curious kind of mental place that you bring up there, you know, that folks into you know, people that have built craft beer businesses. <laughs> on the idea that people should, you know, that drinkers should try more interesting, more flavorful, better made beers, then might get to a point where they then stop that development and that growth and want to keep things where it's comfortable for them rather than allowing things to move. I think that kind of effect happens in all sorts of cultural institutions, not just beer, you know, there, it it happens in food, it could happen in music, art and other things as well. You know, a certain generation gets to a certain point and they're happy and they're comfortable and they've got this thing and the business is working well and, you know, it's making money and customers are buying this and, you know, they like, they, but they want it to be this, um, you know, but the march of time and creativity and new producers will always keep pushing things in some sort of new direction it's the nature and restlessness of creativity yeah I, I i agree i mean i think that's you know that's exactly what's happening i know that the i think the biggest concern with the people that don't want to brew hazy ipas is they're afraid that their other ipas that they love are going to have to go away and certainly that was a concern of ours. You know, it's like hey, if we brew if we brew hazy like a fox, what's going to happen to Hoplandy and Hoptropolis? You know, they're very different flavors. So we still get people that really like those other two beers. So it's it's worked out well. We're starting to see the, and I'm also hearing more brewers start to talk about how they're they are seeing a little bit of a return to bitterness. That uh, uh, you know, as much fun as these hazy IPAs are. You know, inevitably everything is cyclical in the world of craft beer. Nothing, nothing is going to last forever, and that you know we can count on that from here until the end of time. <laughs> Hopefully, some things you know do continue to persist yeah. in, in relatively stable ways. Uh, those things that we like, but you know, at the same time, trends are going to come and trends are going to go, and the trends can be very good and positive for craft beer. Um, but bitterness seems, and some of this kind of West Coast IPA, well, you know, this almost reenvisioned kind of West Coast IPA seems to be uh, you know making a little bit. Of an upswing right now. Yeah, we're hearing a little chatter in that direction too. You know, it's uh, you know even at our booth here today at the Great American Beer Festival, you know the Hoplandy IPA is doing pretty well. Um, you know, with the people that are trying it, and you know, in, in some of the the beer communities on social media, I'm seeing you know people asking where can I get a West Coast IPA in Atlanta, you know, and and we've got one, so you know I'll say hey you can try ours, you know, if you want. But so I'm starting to see a little bit of that, you know, yeah. and, and you know hazy IPAs aren't going anywhere. They're they're still going to be the the main driver of things I think for several years. But um, you know I just I'm a guy that likes variety. Right, I like brewing right. a variety. I like drinking a variety. I like being able to provide a, a variety of beers. So you know my. I don't want to just be a hazy IPA brewer. You know, I, I want to be able to brew other types of IPA. That's important to me. So I think that's a good segue to kind of get back. We we talked about, you know, uh, Hoptropolis and Hoplandia, mm-hmm. uh, but we didn't really get into some of the details about how you build, you know, put a little bit of a new school spin on uh, on these kinds of West Coast hoppy IPAs. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed, and we talked to Evan, uh, you know, Price of Green Cheek about it a, little, you know, a yeah. couple weeks ago on the podcast, um, you know, about that using some of the kind of more, you know, fruit forward flavors and some of the, you know, hopping techniques that hazy IPA brewers are using and mm-hmm. pulling those back into the West Coast style, bringing some bitterness, you know, upping some of the fruit character. And it does, you know, and it has, you know, you know even in some iconic IPAs like Scar City, High Lion and others, mm-hmm. it's creating some really fantastic, still dry, not very sweet and still bitter, but fruit forward, you know, West yeah. Coast IPAs. And that, that also seems to be on the rise. So talk to me a little bit of then about how you use hops in your uh, West Coast style IPAs, but are using them in maybe a little bit different way than you have before. Yeah, probably the Hoptropolis is the beer where we do that. Sure. I, the the Hoplandia is pretty traditional. I mean, okay. it's, I, I basically hopped it like like I did for years, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and didn't really try to get too crazy with that because, you know, I wanted to make sure I knew what what was going to come out of our brew house sure. and it was something. But but Hoptropolis, we definitely tr- were trying to get that tropical, you know, mango and peach and 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 citrus kind of blend of and pineapple right. kind of thing going we just 
combined hops until we found a combination that we like. And I've always done that. I've always, right. uh, you know, um, I guess I have this reputation with my former, you know, people that used to work for me about how I hop beers and how I always <laughs> used a lot right. of different varieties. Sure. Um, and there was a, a practical reason for that because if if the beer took off and we didn't have enough hops, we could adjust the recipe with other hops and you know and 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 not really change the flavor profile right. too much. Uh, versus doing a single hop, you know, or two hops in the in the dry hop, and then you can't get one of them. You can't right, you can't right. make the beer anymore. So with Hoptropolis, we tried to get kind of that that really interesting flavor combination to try. You know, we use Citra. We love Citra hops, and Citra. Um, I think you know they're the most popular hop right now. Um, but I think you know for me, what was kind of neat about that beer was throwing the Azaka in there. And, and getting that pineapple from the Azaka. And I think that just combined really well with the Citra. And then we put some mosaic in there to give it a little bit of dankness, you know, and um, a little bit of that, that more of that tropical type of thing. And, you know, it's a, it's a hot blend that really works. You know, it, it, that, that beer, when it's fresh and I pour it, I get almost like a, you know, like an old canned fruit cocktail yeah. kind of character. I'm getting that pineapple and peach and, you know, a little bit of that cherry and, you know, the whole, you know, it's, it was, it was like going back in time, you know, to when I was a kid and had to eat those little fruit cups, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I got out of the beer. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, this is really different and I like it. Um, I think the whole idea of using some of the techniques for hazy IPAs and other IPAs is great. I We've been talking about doing that. We haven't done a lot of it yet, but we've been talking about doing, you know, kind of a mid-fermentation dry, dry hop uh, on a more West Coast style. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's on our list of things that we want to try. And the the cold uh, wort whirlpool hopping, I think, is something that has a lot of potential for us for, you know, brewing all sorts of different types of IPAs. Because then all the oils go into the fermenter. You know, right, they're not right. lost in the stack. Yeah. So. How do you uh, how do you find the perfect mix of those hops? Uh, you know, I'm trying to break into the Mitch Steele hop brain. You know, what is uh, when you're uh, you know smelling and rubbing hops and trying to you know figure out like okay, you know, rough you know building a percentage uh, you know for a hops mix out of this kind of thing. Uh, what goes through your mind? Oh, it's it's hard. You always wonder whether it's going to yeah. work or not. You know, I think a, a lot of it is trial and error and I'm a big believer in doing dry hop trials and just taking a beer and dry hopping it with several, you know, doing several different, you know, we just use homebrew, um, you know, carboys yeah. and, and just dry hop, you know, five gallons of beer with, with a certain hop. And then we go through a tasting and taste them and then kind of mix and match them you know, oh, play okay. around with blending right. and things like that. And that gets us pretty close to where we want to go. And then we just tweak it from there. But, yeah. I, you know, the the hop combination for Hoptropolis, we tried. We said, we've got these hops. You know, a lot of it is driven by what you have, right? right. We've got these hops. This would be a good home for them. Let's put them together and see how it works. And and we liked the result. We did tone down the mosaic a little bit after the first couple yeah. of batches because it was a little bit too mosaic-y. You know, mosaic's a pretty dominant hop. And I right. wanted I wanted to get that Azaka pineapple and the and the citra to really come out a little bit more. So we just, you know, we just made adjustments as we went. And, you know, fortunately with a restaurant and being able to brew five barrel batches, yeah. you can take those kind of risks and not have to have it right the first time, you know, as long as it's still good. And then you you tweak it. Yeah. So you did a lot of piloting then on a small, uh, smaller system before you, you kind of yeah. ramped it up to the big one. Yeah. We have a five barrel pilot system and we, uh, six fermenters on it and, um, we brew a lot there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, it, all of our brewers can brew on that if they want to, if they come up with a recipe, they build the recipe. Um, but we do a lot of beer development there as well, yeah. you know, and, and, and trial and error. And, you know, we've been playing around with, a lot of our beers, we'll try brewing them with a different malt on that system and okay. just see if it if, if it's better or not or if it changes it radically or yeah. things like that. So we use it a lot for research. Have there been any uh, interesting finds that you found from some of those uh, little pilot uh, you know, tests that you've done? Oh, boy. Um, we used an American-made Pilsner malt in a Euphonia um, batch on that five-barrel system, and I was incredibly impressed at how how much Pilsner character was in that malt. Huh. Uh, because I've had American Pilsner malts that are beautiful malts, but they're very clean and they don't give you that that kind of honey grassiness that you get from yeah. like like a German Pilsner. 
that was really interesting, you know. Okay. So now we didn't make it was a little bit different than what we had in Euphonia. Sure. So we didn't make a change there, but we've been using this Pilsner malt and other beers, and it's been fun, you know, yeah. to kind of go through that discovery. Um, hop trials are always great, you know. Right. Uh, uh, we we have a series of one hop single hop beers or uh, that we call hop audition, um, and you know, a set, you know. Tasting Sabro, tasting Strata for the first time, yeah. is, you know, that's always mind-blowing. You know, you get those new hop varieties and see what they're all about. You use the same base kind of, you know, malt recipe yep. and, uh, and same yeast and just uh, swap hops out on that. Exactly. And yeah. it's incredibly valuable. I mean, you learn so much from that, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, like, and, and so we've done a lot of beers uh, doing that. That's really where we get it. You know, we and we got to do an experimental hop beer with... Uh, um, John I. Haas, uh, and that was cool, you know. So we got two hops we'd never used before yeah. and threw them in there and piloted them first and said, okay, we do like this combination, so yeah. we're good to yeah. go. The <laughs> afternoon session of GABF just got out. It's uh, it's it's right at time, so we can hear the cheering crowds behind <laughs> us off in the background. Um, let's, uh, again, switch a little bit of gears. Uh, I know that the subject of hard seltzer you know, is something that's been on your mind and that you've been putting some work into figuring out. Um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, number one, what the what that market looks like for you as a craft brewery, why you want to get into that. And number two, uh, you know, what you found in terms of, you know, kind of technical process, uh, how you adapt a, a, you know, production brew house, you know, that's built for making beer into, you know, building, you know, creating this kind of, you know, hard seltzer product. And then, you know, how you think about, making hard seltzers that are uh, that have some sort of distinct character and aren't just the same thing that everyone else is putting out but more expensive <laughs> yeah it's um and the the first question we're still not sure we want to do it it's a, it's a very yeah. deep philosophical discussion you know do we want to be a brewer or do we want to make a product that people want to drink you know because you know the what you see going on with white claw and truly and all this stuff that's all the young people are drinking. I, I mean, you know, we have, uh, you know, the three of us that, that started this company all have college-age kids. Yeah. And they don't see beer at parties anymore. They see hard seltzers. So Interesting. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so what do we do? Do we change with the times and embrace this? Do we say we're a brewery and not do it? And we're still having those discussions. Yeah. Um, but in the interim, while we're trying to figure out whether that's an avenue we want to go down, I've been trying to learn how to do them because I want to be ready in case we want to pull sure, the trigger on sure. it. And, and so we've brewed some pilot batches and uh, have played around with different things and, um, and served them in our, in our restaurants. And they, they've gone over pretty well. Um, I think what I've learned, apart from the actual brewing process, is the flavor selection. Because all, all, these, all these seltzers have a natural flavor added after fermentation right. in, in the bright kind of thing. And, and that's one thing we've learned. They're not adding real fruit or anything like right, that. They're right. adding a really concentrated flavor compound. And what you select for that is critically important. They're, you know, if you bring in trials of you know, samples of, of raspberry uh, flavor from a bunch of different flavor houses, they're all going to taste very different. And, and so I think that's, the, you know, once you get past the process part of, of brewing these things, that's the real challenge to being successful, successful with it. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, do we go with a black cherry seltzer because that's what's White Claw's biggest seller is, is the black <laughs> cherry. Should we make one right. of those or should we try right. to do something different? And we don't have the answer to that yet, but those are the kind of questions we're asking ourselves. The process is, is somewhat fascinating, you know, it's, it, um, and what we've learned is most everybody does it the same way. They're taking some sort of sugar, mixing it with water in their brew house, boiling it or heating it to pasteurize it. And, and actually somebody who has a lot of experience with seltzer said, told us not to boil it. He said, don't boil it because you're going to develop some color from the sugar if you boil it. Right. And you don't want that. So he said, uh, he told me just heat it up to like 165 degrees yeah. and hold it for 15 minutes and that's going to pasteurize it and kill anything. So uh, that was something we just learned recently. Um, but then you'd, you you take this liquid that's got this sugar dissolved in it and you send it to a fermenter, you oxygenate it and you add ye yeast nutrient to it. And uh, because there's no nutrients in sugar, um, <clears throat> so you have to add uh, yeast nutrients, and there's a lot of different ones out there. And, yeah. And then the yeast selection is really important too. The first one we did 
uh, we fermented with our house ale yeast, and it had a definite sourdough type yeast okay. yeast character. Sure, sure. Um, and so we we started using the distiller's yeast uh, that's out there that a lot of people are using for seltzers, and that works really well. It's it's a lot cleaner uh, in, in the end than the uh, than the Cal Ale yeast was for right. us. Uh, and we're getting ready to try. Uh, champagne yeast as well because there are some champagne yeast strains that a lot of people have had success with with doing this so yeah you know and then um you still get a little bit of color in it you're and i'm not sure exactly where that's coming from um if you're running it in your brew house you may be picking up from residual past brews you know boiling creates some color so we've started finding our seltzers with carbon granulated carbon okay and that has cleaned them up significantly it it strips out any of that fermentation character and it strips out color so you end up with something that looks like you know like a seltzer right um and that that was a little tricky the first seltzer we did had a pale yellow color it was kind (laughs) of like okay this doesn't look that great you know and um uh so we use lemon in that (laughs) so it's it's lemon you know so people expect it to be yellow maybe uh But we figured that out. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the sugar source is important. You know, um, a lot of people are using cane sugar, and, and cane sugar, table sugar, is um, is sucrose, right? It's a combination of, of fructose and glucose in the molecule. So the yeast has to work a little harder to consume that sugar than using dextrose, for example. And dextrose is all glucose, yeah. and the yeast really likes that. Um, and I had somebody tell me that using liquid glucose is the way to go. Um, and you know, you just, you just pump it in it mixes better than granular. And, you know, we haven't tried that yet, but we're, we're looking at that. So, you know, it's been a learning process and we've had fun with it. And, you know, I don't know if I'll ever drink what we make, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we're, we're learning as we go. And, and, you know, like in the brewing community, people are, who are doing it have been very helpful and I've been able to help a lot of people as well, you know, that what, with what we've learned and what we've tried and what we thought didn't work, um, you know, like using the ale yeast, right. um, you know, and pass that on to people. So, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. So then using these, uh, these flavors from flavor houses that are chemical compounds, obviously you're trying to, you know, the same kind of color concerns you want to, uh, you know, use these because they, they keep it clear and bright and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. don't weigh it down meets those consumer expectations. Uh, are there any concerns in terms of uh, how you add and how you mix, uh, you know, and then keep some of these flavors or are these just specifically designed, you know, to remain in suspension in these kinds of drinks? Yeah, you, I, you need to use water-soluble flavors, um, yeah. you know, because otherwise they, they won't mix well. Um, I think, um, you know, as far as addition methods go, what we do is we we just put some in the tank that we're – sending the bright beer to and then then the turbulence created by pumping the bright beer or the seltzer i should say into there mixes it up pretty well Uh, and we've had success with that yeah it's interesting i did learn that that a lot of citrus flavors will throw a haze which you don't want yeah uh and there are flavor houses that are formulating these flavors that are haze free um so that's a good thing um there are a lot of flavor houses that have already had their flavors TTB approved. So when you have to put your formulation into the TTB so they can allow you to brew right, this, right. Uh, if you use one of those flavors, you're a step ahead of the game, um, which is really great. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, it's an evolving thing, but, you know, that's uh, – uh, we're still in very early stages of it. We've done two of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we are gearing up to do more if we need to. It's been absolutely fascinating to see how many uh, uh, we've been sent by you know craft breweries that are mm-hmm. moving into this spectrum, uh, and of course you know they run the gamut. Some are really great, and you can see why uh, people enjoy drinking this. They're mm-hmm. light, they're bright, they f- they feel like they're not uh, you know the heavy kind of you know uh, you know beer approach, um, and then others taste kind of medicinal and yeah. fake, and uh, you know there's something that's very unpleasant about that. Yes, uh, you know, and, and and so yeah, it's still the wild west when it comes to you know it how is. to do these incredibly well. Yeah, I I think so. You know, and you know, we we tasted ours and and we were like, you know, the flavor's good, but it doesn't pack that that punch that these commercial examples do. And again, you know, philosophically, do we want to try and do what they're doing and having success with, or do we want to try and create our own niche with this? 
I don't know what the right answer is. You know, yeah. I, we'll probably do a combination of both. You know, do something that people expect when they see a seltzer on the menu, right? And then maybe do something that's a little more exotic. You know, that's kind of I think the path we're going to go down if we do this. But I'm just not sure yet. Yeah, have you tried back sweetening at all? No, I haven't done that. Okay. Um, I know there are some that some seltzers that are are sweetened. Uh, I'm a little afraid of that because I don't want to have to add preservatives or go through pasteurization or any of that crap. You know, yeah. I, I just don't want to do that. So we've been making ours all dry and we'll see how those do. And then, yeah. you know, if 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 people need the, the sugar, we'll figure out a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So, uh, you know, outside of seltzer, uh, what's next on the horizon for uh, for New Realm? What are uh, what are some of the, the brewing projects and some of the ideas percolating in your head that uh, – or uh, making you excited about uh, doing what you do these days? Well, we're, you know, we're, we're looking at, um, uh, we've done a lot of kind of neat things. You know, when Brute IPAs came out, we took that concept and we made several Brute IPAs. And then, and then we did, we took that and made a, a Brute Fruit Ale um, with raspberries. And we were trying to make like a raspberry champagne kind right. of thing, you know, because we can't serve champagne in our restaurant. It, that's Georgia law doesn't allow right, us to right. serve anything but our own beer. And, and so I said, all right, well, let's try to make something that's going to satisfy the people that want champagne, you know? And so we did this raspberry brute ale that was dry as a bone and had this intense raspberry flavor. And it was all real fruit it was puree yeah and it had this bright pink color and it was really cool um you know so those kind of things are are what we do um you know we're working on um uh, a low calorie low carb ipa uh it's called Isn't innocent everybody IPA. yeah Mitch. right i know that's not that innovative <laughs> at this is it point 100 calories or 110 uh, ours yeah. ours are less than 100 that's the oh, goal less than 100 yeah All less right. than 100 and less than five grams of carbs um but, you know, that evolved out of the brood IPA process, sure, right? I mean, sure. you know, I'm sitting there tasting brood IPAs, and I, I just said, wow, we've never run calories on this. We haven't run carbs. So we sent some out and ran them. We're like, oh, th- this is what we should be doing. And yeah. we, we've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, we brewed a couple of them. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not really a surprise. I mean, the whole glucoamylase thing came out of um, what Miller Lite, light beer. Right. Uh, you know, and so it's, it's not a shock that we can produce, uh, you know, low calorie beer that way or lower calorie beer that yeah. way. Uh, when you're envisioning a low cal, healthier for you, slightly better for you I, IPA. Um, that creates a whole bunch of new concerns. You know, certainly the idea of body in a beer that's that light uh, yeah. becomes a whole nother thing. Um, talk to me a little bit about how, uh, you know, how you're, you're designing that. And then also, uh, you know, uh, I know other brewers are experiencing the idea that different hops have different physical characteristics, especially in beers that are that light. How do you, again, think about hop selection so that uh, uh, you can, you know, use hops that may produce some more, you know, greater perception of body? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think we've figured that out yet, to okay. be honest. I, I think, you know, the, the way we've approached topping these beers so far has been to use, you know, the first one we did, we tried using the kind of wine-like hops like, you know, everybody was doing. And then we moved away from that pretty quick. Right. Um, we don't want it to taste like a hop tea. That's that's the, right. the concern. And, um, you know, we, we've got a batch going now where we use some Maris Otter malt in it and, um, you know, use some oats in it to try and give it a little bit of extra smoothness. But st- And then we add the enzyme as well. So that's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do. And, I, you know, even, you know, back in the days when we started brewing Session IPA at Stone, it was really hard to get something that, you know, had enough body to satisfy people, you know, and, right. uh, and our first version of GoTo was very, very thin and, and, um, you know, we added a little bit of dextrose malt to that, you know, which, which is different than what you do for a locale, uh, <laughs> beer. But, you know, we ended up raising the alcohol in that beer because huh. that's, that's was the best thing, you know, it started off at like four, two, you know, 4.2%. And we went, I think we took it up to four, seven, you know, just because that little half a percent of alcohol gave it a Ethanol tremendous itself amount of just body. made the difference, huh? Yeah. But yeah, with a with a brood IPA, it's really hard. And I think that's been the knock on brood IPAs over over the the last year or so that people have been doing them is is that they don't have enough body and they're right. just too too dry, you know. And so using hops to get that perception of body, um, 
I don't know enough about that, but it's certainly something we've talked about. And right. we just don't know which hops we should be doing. You know, that's uh, kind of one of those things that we're looking at and trying to understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. It's fun to watch brewers try to crack the code on these yeah. and, uh, you know, and create new products. Uh, you know, maybe when he was on the podcast a few months ago, talked about their low calorie hazy IPA. And I mean, mm-hmm. it literally took him, you know, five months to get from, you know, those pilot batches that, uh, we, that they had on tap there to what they're releasing now. And I think they're just releasing it today oh, or, cool. or this week, okay. uh, you know, JBF. Um, you know, these are, again, you know, even though you know the direction you want to move in, yeah. uh, you know, fine tuning and getting those those points figured out can be a hard thing. It, it is a hard thing. And, you know, I remember having a conversation with somebody this week and he goes, yeah, when was the last time you brewed a beer that was perfect the first time? And I'm like, you know, that's a really good question because it's almost never, you know, I mean, I can count them on one hand, you know, how many times we've nailed the beer on the first time and how excited you get when you do that, you know, but you just got to go into it knowing you're going to have to try, do a lot of trial and error and try different things. And so, you know, that's, again, you know, that was how we were able to justify putting that five barrel brewery in our brewery in Atlanta side by side with a 20 barrel brew house so you know it just gives us the opportunity to really try a lot of different things and get things right before we go big so what else is next in beer what's next mitch i don't know gosh who knows i don't think anybody knows yeah um you know i can i can jump on the pilsner bandwagon everybody says that's the next big thing it's been the next the big thing for 20 years (laughs) now yeah right yeah uh i do take a lot of love it for sure yeah for sure i I mean i love drinking them of course yeah i i i I'm happy that our Pilsner has been near the top of our sales since the day we released yeah. it. So that's that's been kind of cool. Um, but I don't know, you know. I, I mean, you know, in Atlanta, um, every region's so different, you know. And one thing we're finding now that we've got a brewery in Virginia is the people in Virginia are very different beer drinkers than the people in Atlanta. Yeah, and, interesting. Um, you know, in what way? Well, um, I think um, I think that people in Virginia like the tried and true stuff, you know, um, you know, our German loggers do incredibly well in our restaurant in Virginia beach. And, um, uh, you know, in Atlanta, I think Atlanta is a little bit more in tune with current trends, you know, and, and what's, what the cutting edge type stuff is, you know, and, and more exotic flavors and things like that, you know, so we've had to kind of tailor our, you know, what we brew. And when you're saying that, you're not saying that every beer drinker is like this, but that the percentage of beer drinkers that are like this right. may be balanced in different ways, you know? That's exactly right. It's, you know, yeah. we, we're not, I know you're not trying to cast everyone that way. It's no. just, you know, same kind of thing. Like when you go to Milwaukee, you know, there's a more, a greater percentage of, of beer drinkers that want these kinds of classic lager styles. Yeah. You know, there are still those that want these, you know, more progressive styles as well. It's just, yeah. you know, the balance is a little bit different. Yeah, and that's exactly right, you know. And, um, you know, people are uh, get more excited about fruited gozas in Atlanta than they do in Virginia, you know. Yeah. And that's, yeah. okay, you know, but people in Virginia like them too. You know, it's it's just, it's, it's just a little bit, uh, the scales are a little bit different. The sure. balance is a little bit different. But, um yeah, it's been interesting, you know, from that standpoint. Um, next big thing with beer, I, you know, I wish I knew. I, I, you know, I just try to stay on top of things. If things start emerging that start getting some interest, I'm pretty quick to jump on them and brew them, you know. We were the first brewer in Georgia to brew a brewed IPA. And, you know, brewed IPAs have come and gone. It was it was a pretty you, quick one, right? Yeah, uh, you know, but you got to try, you sure. know, and see what happens. And, um yeah, I don't. I don't know if seltzers are the next big thing. Let's I, kinda, you know, maybe I just, they'll move the way the brewed IPAs have. We yeah, never know. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I yeah. most of the industry experts are telling us seltzers are here for at least three to four years. They're okay. going to be a big deal. So until a new generation of beer drinkers matures, you know. <laughs> I love that. That's it. It's like uh, three to four years. You know, yeah. that's the cycle now. Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked to some brewers who are like, you know, if we have a brand that performs for two years, we're really happy with that. Yeah. You know that. Uh, you know the. Ex- expectations now are not that we're going to build a brand that's going to keep selling for 20 years because those are just almost impossible to make these days. Yeah, it's really changed. Um, you know, flagship beers are a thing of the past. You, yeah. you know, you can have a flagship for a few years, but to think that it's going to last for decades is 
you know, it's just not realistic anymore with the way the beer market is and the way people people want to try different things. And they're yeah. very fickle. And there's not a lot of uh, there's a there's still a fair amount, but there's not that much brand loyalty like there was back, you know, in the right. 80s or early 90s. Um, and so you got to be quick. You got to be flexible, and you got to adapt. And you know that's why the seltzer thing is, topic is important. You know, right. is is this an example where you got to be quick and and uh, adapt to the changing drinking habits, or do you try to keep pushing what you do? You know, and I, you know I don't know the answer, but it's it's interesting how the flagship concept has kind of gone away. And yeah. I, you know, and I know at Stone, my last few years at Stone, we ended up reformulating a bunch of our beers and right. dropping a bunch of our beers just because they weren't selling anymore. And it, it was funny, you know, we, we stopped brewing Sublimely Self-Righteous, which was our black IPA, and people were coming up to me very angry. And they're like, how could you discontinue that? And I said, believe me, I'm not happy about it, but when was the last time you bought one? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's been about a year. Yeah. I'm like, that's exactly right. You know, well, why, why, we, why do we keep brewing something that people aren't buying? You know, there's your message. <laughs> Beer fans out there, brewers, everyone else, if you want things to survive, buy them, <laughs> right. support them. It's, it's awesome. not rocket science. Yeah. yeah. If you want West Coast IPAs to stick around, buy them. Yeah. <laughs> Basic business, right? <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> If you don't want to have seltzers to stick around, don't buy them. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, Mitch, uh, if people want to learn more about New Realm, where do they uh, where do they find you? Well, uh, so we have a, a, a website. It's newrealmbrewing.com that has a lot of stuff on it. We're very active on Instagram. You know, we're uh, we have two locations. One's in in Atlanta. Uh, we're about a mile east of the downtown midtown area, uh, in a very heavily populated neighborhood. Um, you know, that's got a lot of nightlife and everything else. So we're in kind of in the heart of strategically positioned. Yeah. Really great. And then in Virginia beach, we're, we're about five miles from the beach strip, um, you know, and all the hotels and stuff. We're in a more residential area, but you know, so it's a, it's a little bit more of a trek, uh, and a destination to go to our Virginia beach spot than it is to go to Atlanta where you can, you know, thousands of people walk by our place every day. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we get a lot of foot traffic there that we're not, never going to get in Virginia. Whether you are in Virginia out there in the beach or whether you are in Atlanta, go buy new realm, grab a pint, <laughs> grab a, Eufo- is it euphonia, Pilsner? euphonia, Pilsner, euphonia, yeah. Pilsner, a <laughs> hopstropolis kind of new school West coast IPA yeah. or a hazy, like a Fox. Uh, hazy IPA. Yeah, thank and, you. Uh, and let Mitch know what you think of them. <laughs> uh, mention this podcast and get a thousand dollars in free glycol from GDA Chillers. Turn your fridge into the best beer bar around with the Tavor app. Download the Brew Guru app today. And Clarion Lubricants is the expert that experts trust. If you've enjoyed the podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click the subscribe button. Subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and uh, you know support what we do. Thanks for sitting down with me on the podcast, Mitch. Really appreciated you uh, talking today. Thanks, Jamie. It was fun. Cool. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.